We have now come to the end of our study of Romans 1. And this most important study of the revealed wrath of God. It has been for me a most enlightening and impacting study. We have said that there are three R's here. The revelation of the wrath of God, verse 18. The reasons for the wrath of God, verses 19 to 23. And the results of the wrath of God, verses 24 to 32. And we're presently in the final section of our outline, considering the results of the wrath of God. And we're actually at the point where we have only one verse left to ponder, and that is in verse 32 of Romans 1. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Before we delve into the sense of this concluding verse of the chapter, let me summarize the rest of the chapter so that we can have it firmly grasped within our minds, especially for some of those of you who might have missed some of these studies, or even for some of those of you who are here for the very first time today. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is, the power of God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The Apostle Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. For in the gospel, the power of God for salvation is very evident for everyone who believes, of course. And that has been first manifested to the Jew, but it has also been manifested to the Greek. For the power of God has been clearly given in the gospel and it has been revealed that the righteousness of God has been so clearly made evident to those who by faith have grasped it. The righteous, Paul says, shall live by faith. Every believer experiences the power of God and the righteousness of God in the gospel, the good news. That's wonderful news. That's great news. And Paul wants to say right up front to these Romans, as he writes this beautiful letter, the good news, the glorious news, because in verse 18, he's about to give them the bad news. Just as he tells them that there is something 
that's revealed about the gospel, the good news of the power and righteousness of God, he's also about to tell them something of the bad news. The reason why the good news is so good is because the bad news is so bad. In verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he says it that way, and you would assume that he would need to say it that way, because the carnal mind, the unbeliever, would immediately begin to say, I want that good news, I want the goodies, I want the good stuff, and I'm not sure I believe you, I'm not sure that I agree that the bad news is so bad. Because that's what ungodliness and unrighteousness does. It never sees the bad news quite for what it is. And Paul says you need to see it for what it is. The bad news is really bad. And he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. It's like a man who sits on top of the box of truth, not allowing it to escape. And in verse 19, Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to everyone who dares or cares to listen. Because God has shown it to them. Shown what to them? The reality of His existence. Verse 20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, His godness, His deity have been clearly perceived. His invisibility has become visible. Ever since the creation of the world, ever since time began, ever since man has known about anything in the things that have been made so that they, that is man, mankind, mankind in general, so that they are without excuse There's not a single man, woman, or child who could ever say, you never told me enough. Man is without excuse. God has been clearly made visible in the reality that He is God. There is a Creator ever since the creation of the world, Paul says. And according to verse 21, for although they knew God, they knew something of Him. They they didn't know Him as Savior. They didn't have an intimacy with Him, but they at least had a scant knowledge of Him. They knew enough that He was Creator, and they knew enough that there was a divine being, a supreme being. But they did not honor Him as God, Paul says, or give thanks to Him. But, contrary to people saying that evolution or man rising up out of the ashes, becoming more and more educated, more and more erudite, instead of evolution, it's devolution. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, verse 22, they became fools and exchanged the glory, the effulgence, the glory of the immortal God, the God who has always existed, not not mortal man, not, not the created being, but the uncreated being, the one who has always been, the divine nature, the one who has always existed, the immortal God. Man has exchanged the glory of that God for images resembling mortal man. And what's worse, birds and animals and reptiles. That is, that is what man does. That's endemic to his nature. To bring deity down to his level. And what's worse, even below his level, to birds and to animals and to reptiles. Those are the reasons for the wrath of God. So, verse 24 Here are the results. Therefore, God gave them up. He abandoned them. Judicially, God gave them up. Abandoned them in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And it's always the way it is. Idolatry leads to impurity, to immorality. Aren't we seeing that in this Iraqi conflict, even in the unthinkable, unthinkable treatment of some of these soldiers, man left to himself will immediately, in the idolatry of self, degenerate into sexual immorality. You can see it lived out. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. The Creator, Paul says, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, Paul says, God gave them up. The second use of that phrase, God gave them up. God abandoned them. God gave them over to dishonorable passions. What kind, Paul? For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. People say, is there a gene? Is there a DNA for lesbianism, for homosexuality? No. There can't be because the Word of God says it is contrary to nature. It can't be. No matter what you'll be told, no matter what people say they will find, it says here in the Word of the living God that it is contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations, the way God created male and female. Gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God just gave them over to their, to their own lusts, their own desires. The due penalty. You want it, you can have it. That's their penalty. That's their condemnation. 
Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, literally, since they did not approve of God, God did not approve of them. And He gave them over. Third use, God gave them over. God gave them up. God abandoned them to a depraved mind, a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. It's against nature. It's against creation. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You remember I said to you, after a hideous list like that, all you can say is, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. And now as we come to verse 32, Paul comes to a climactic conclusion to this section of his argument against sinners. And I mentioned to you this is like a courtroom scene. And he pronounces now the verdict. Here's the verdict. Look at what he says in verse 32. Deserve to die. That's the verdict. Death penalty. There it is. And by the way, Paul will have nothing of someone even remotely suggesting that God isn't fair in sentencing mankind to death, even though Paul does say that God has abandoned the sinner. And I quoted it for you three times. Paul says, God gave them up, God gave them up. God gave them up, but He does not in any way nullify His compatible statement here, those who practice such things deserve to die. It is both God's sovereignty and human responsibility in compatible action. No contradiction here whatsoever. Paul has no problem saying that. No problem. This is the argument of the Apostle. The arguments have all been given. The evidence is conclusive. The case is airtight. The spiritual attorney, the Apostle Paul, says the sinner is justly condemned. He is now asked to stand before the bar of divine justice to await the verdict. And it is read by God through Paul, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. It's as though every single sinner, myself included, stands before a holy God. Sinner, stand for the verdict. And we stand. And he says, death. Death to you. And there's no answering back to God. There's no answering back. And you know, and I know, in our hearts, that we're guilty. The logic is impeccable. The reasoning is flawless. Paul's skills as a spiritual attorney in this chapter have been most effective. Even the, even the sense of man's culpability in the knowledge department is quite evident. Look at verse 18. They suppress the truth, he says. Verse 19. 
what can be known about God is plain to them. Plain to them. Verse 20. Have been clearly perceived ever since creation. Verse 20. So they are without excuse. Verse 21. They knew God. Verse 21. They did not honor or give thanks to God. Verse 28. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. Verse 32. They know God's decree. Eight times. Eight times in this section, Paul explicitly says that mankind, king in especially on the Gentiles, have a knowledge of the Creator God, but they suppress, or they don't honor, or they don't give thanks, or they don't see, see fit to acknowledge, and are therefore without excuse, and God abandons them first to a reprobate mind, and then to a death before death. A death before dying. A death on earth, if you will. And then hell afterwards for all eternity. This is the wrath of God. I'm telling you, it's bad news. It is bad, bad news. This is why Paul can say the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And God is justified in this. God is righteous in this. Don't for one single solitary moment ever think that a sovereign, holy, majestic God who cannot look upon sin, will wink at sin and see it as trivial and meaningless. Not at all. Not at all. No. He sees sin, all sin, as wicked and vile and wretched, and His holy wrath from heaven is, not will be, is poured out on all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, to be sure, His wrath will not be equally distributed. His retribution will be revealed in different ways and with different degrees of punishment. You say, how so? Well, this is what Paul is driving toward in this last verse. Let me see if I can unpack it for you. Let me see if I can explain it to you. This last result of the wrath of God in verse 32 comes to us in a twofold way. This is our outline this morning. Number one. Number one. Verse 32a is teaching us that those who deserve to die inherently know that they're doing it against God's decree. That's what he says. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know they know what they're doing, but they do it anyway. And those who practice such things deserve to die. That's number one. And number two, verse 32b, climaxes the entire section by showing the ultimate depravity of man. You say, what is it? They not only continue to commit sin themselves, but they applaud others in their committing of sins. 
That's the ultimate in human depravity. You not only are willing and able to commit sin yourself, but you give hearty approval to those around you who are also practicing their depravity. It's amazing. Let's let's unpack this first of two points that Paul wants to make here. He wants to emphasize one final time. I mean, I'm studying this myself and I'm saying, enough! I mean, I, I, I have it. I mean, you just, you just can't study this, this chapter and say to yourself, give me more. You're saying to yourself, I have it. You want to run away from this chapter. The preacher says, Lord, I have it. But Paul says, no, you don't. You have to understand the depths, the depths of this thing. What is going on here? He says, though they know God's decree. What is this decree? Well, we need to understand what it isn't. A lot of people say, well, maybe this decree is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. God's law is given to Moses. That's not what it is. It's not that. What Paul is rather talking about is... A law written on the heart. That's an inherent law of right and wrong. Which God places on the heart of every person at their birth. What's that called? The conscience. That's what that's called. It's called the conscience. And I showed it to you in one of our earlier studies when I quoted from Romans chapter 2 verse 14 and 15. Look at it. For when Gentiles... And that's who I think he's mainly referring to here in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verses 19 and following. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is the law of Moses, that is the Decalogue, that's what he gave the Jews. But the Gentiles, of course, didn't have that. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. In other words, the law of God, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and other laws, of course, which God gave in the Torah, the Gentiles didn't have that, of course. They they weren't privileged in that sense. And so what did they have? Were they just utterly lawless people? No, Paul says the Gentiles who do not have the law... By nature, they do what the law requires. They're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show, he says, that the work of the law is written where? On their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Boy, that's a great definition of the conscience. Great definition of the conscience. You're walking down the street, and I've used this illustration before. You're walking down that sidewalk, and you see that nicely manicured grass, and you see that sign there that says what? Don't step on the grass, and what do you want to do? Ooh, I just want to put my foot on it. I want to mess it up, because there's a sign there that says don't do that. Or... 
If some of you think you're just especially righteous, stay off the grass. Oh, I don't want to do that. See, your conscience bears witness, else accusing or excusing you. See, God has placed within every human heart the capacity of conscience that is the innate sense of right and wrong. Now, to be sure, this conscience is defiled with sin. Defiled. As theologians call this, the the noetic effects of sin. It's from the Greek word nous, which means mind. And even though the Gentiles have this law written on their hearts, it doesn't mean that it merits them eternal life. It doesn't mean that it merits them a right standing with God. It doesn't. It just means that there's an innate sense that there's a right and wrong, that God has placed within man the sense, the conscience, that there's a sense in which there's a God, there's a divine being, there's a creator, and there's a sense in which if I do something, there's a pang in my conscience. There's something that's telling me at a certain point that this is right and that this is wrong. Now beyond that, I don't have the Bible, I don't have that special revelation, I don't have the reality of Jesus Christ, I don't have anything like that. And because of the noetic effects of sin, it's blurred, it's damaged, it's maimed, it's defiled. But there's still a conscience. There's still a sense inside me that else in conflict accuses or even excuses me. And Paul is saying right here, there's a decree, not a law, not written down, not given at Mount Sinai, but but in the heart. We could even say about this word decree, since it comes from that same dikaios word group with which the words justify and righteousness comes, that the corresponding words acquittal and condemnation are appropriate. Paul is saying that though mankind in his conscience knows God's sense of rightness, His sense that if I do this, I'm acquitted well, or if I do this, I'm condemned. Mankind chooses to ignore this conscience and do the deed. What kind of deed? Any deed of thought or word or action which violates his conscience. So you have this thing in your heart, and then a word comes. A thought comes. A deed comes. And your conscience is right there, and it says, don't do that. Don't think that. Don't say that. It's right there. You see, your conscience, as John MacArthur once wrote in The Vanishing Conscience, is likened to an experience of an airline pilot during the flight of the 1984 Avianca Airlines jet, which ultimately crashed in Spain. Do you remember that? Quote, Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery. The black box cockpit Recorders revealed that several minutes before impact, a shrill computer-synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, Pull up! Pull up! The pilot, evidently thinking the system was malfunctioning, snapped, Shut up, gringo! And switched the system off. Everybody on board died. John MacArthur writes, when I saw that tragic story on the news shortly after it happened, it struck me as a perfect parable of the way modern people treat the warning messages of their consciences. 
The wisdom of our age says guilt feelings are nearly always erroneous or hurtful. Therefore, we should switch them off. But is this good advice? What, after all, is the conscience? This sense of guilt we all seem to feel. How much heed should we pay to the pangs of a grieved conscience? Your conscience, Paul is saying, is like the soul's warning device which shrieks at us, pull up, pull up! But mankind ignores it by saying, shut up, conscience. That's Paul's point here. He's saying, God is out there. God is clearly visible. God is saying, I've created the world. There's a divine being. You should know me. You should pursue me. I'm here. Grope for me. Come to me. And mankind is saying, shut up, God. Shut up, conscience. It's ignoring God's decree of conscience. And we just continue to practice our sins. Let me ask you, how long are you going to ignore God's inbuilt warning system? How long? In order to practice your sinning, how long? The Word of God proclaims right here that if you continue to practice such things, it is deserving of death. It simply cannot be any more plainly stated than this. And notice, this is a practiced position. These are present tense realities here. They practice such things. You see it there? Those who practice such things. It's a practice worthy of death. What kind of death? Is he, is he speaking here of physical death? Eternal death? Well, first the one and then the other, I assume. I told you in a previous message that I didn't believe that AIDS was the direct judgment of God upon homosexuality. But it certainly could be an indirect consequence upon it. It is true, however, that any individual or nation collectively which continues to turn off their warning signal will experience what consequences befall individuals or nations at God's behest. And whether it's the HIV virus or AIDS or well or any sexually transmitted diseases or any other thing that are the physical consequences of sin. We don't know. Only God knows. Only God knows when that abandonment comes to an individual or a nation. Why, why test Him that way? Why test Him when we don't know? What do we know that causes death? I don't think Paul is directly referencing physical death here per se as he speaks of, of it here in verse 32, but he could. Physical death, but he could. Don't assume that your sinful actions don't include the consequences which would affect one physically. Could. Paul does indeed talk here in Romans about the degrading of one's bodies among them. 
Could it be that the degrading of one's body includes something physical? Of course. Could mean that. Devastating effects of men and women turning off their consciences could have devastating physical effects as well. Kent Hughes, pastor and friend of mine, College Church, Wheaton, writes this, The great pox of Columbus and his sailors introduced a virulent strain of syphilis which spread to the rest of the world in less than 100 years. The disease existed from far more distant times than his, but never like this. A 1972 issue of Time magazine said, After the ordinary cold, syphilis and gonorrhea are the most common infectious diseases among young people, outranking all cases of hepatitis, measles, mumps, scarlet fever, strep throat, and tuberculosis put together. That was 1972. Who knows what the statistics are today? The sexually transmitted herpes virus infection can also be dated to ancient times, but today it is epidemic. A 1982 Times cover story, The New Scarlet Letter, revealed that an estimated 20 million Americans, and that's 1982, 22 years ago, wonder what it is now, 20 million Americans now have sexually communicated herpes. Worse, it is completely incurable. As Time said, quote, it won't kill you, but you won't kill it either. The reason for the virus exponential increase, according to Time, has been the escalation of sexual license. And beloved, this is just the consequences of sin in the sexual arena. What about the consequences of sin for both the mind and the body in the areas of gluttony, anger, Rage, envy, bitterness, worry, fear, etc., etc. Now I think we may know what Paul says in verse 27, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Well, Paul finishes with a climactic indictment here in verse 32b. They not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. This is the worst. Sinful, brazen, depraved man is simply not yet finished. He's not finished. He can't help himself. He's not satisfied in the committing of his own sinning, but he must give approval to other depraved sinners who are also practicing with them. This is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I thought we couldn't possibly get any worse when we surveyed Paul's ghastly lists of sins in verses 28 to 31. With regard to that list, one commentator wrote this, like jugs filled to overflowing with noxious liquids, they are brimful of wickedness ready to spill over at any moment. Well, guess what? It just became far worse. The noxious liquids are now gushing out. 
We see this with reality television shows. Howard Stern, Jerry Springer here in America. Sins of unmentionable dimensions are not only now being portrayed, but people are either in studio or at home watching it like voyeurists, applauding the whole affair. Bring it on, Jerry! Oh, Howard, that's so funny. Whether it's at home, in studio, just drinking it in. Vile, wretched. This is the living out of Romans 1.32 right before us. Can't be any more plain. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. John Murray, however severe has been the Apostle's delineation of the depravity of men, he has reserved for the end the characterization which is the most damning of all. It is that of the consensus of men in the pursuit of iniquity. The most damning condition is not the practice of iniquity. However much that may evidence our abandonment of God and abandonment to sin, it is that together with the practice, there is also the support and encouragement of others in the practice of the same. To put it bluntly, we are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in the doing of those things that we know have their issue in damnation. We hate others as we hate ourselves and render therefore to them the approval of what we know merits damnation. Iniquity is most aggravated when it meets with no inhibition from the disapproval of others and when there is collective undissenting approbation. Did you hear that? Iniquity is most aggravated when it meets with no inhibition from the disapproval of others and when there is collective, undissenting approbation. Iniquity just runs amok when there isn't any dissenting person saying, What are you doing? And when you have people saying, Oh, yes, go for it. Oh, wonderful. Sin some more. We like it. But someone might object and say to Paul, well, all sin is the same. All sin is sin. Sin merits the same consequences. Paul begs to differ. No, he says, he's clearly setting up here a degree of difference between someone who sins and is judged for it and someone who sins and goes beyond it by applauding the sins of others. And if you've ever wondered, are there degrees of sin and degrees of punishment for sin? Here it is. Right here in verse 32. There are worse sins and worse judgments. He says it. Cranfield helps us when he says this. A good many have argued, surely rightly, that it is indeed true that the man who applauds and encourages those who practice something shameful, though he himself not practicing it, 
is not only as depraved as those who practice it, but very often, if not always, actually more depraved than they. For those who applaud and encourage the vicious establishment of a public opinion favorable to vice and thereby promote the corruption of an unnumbered multitude, and they will not usually have been under any such powerful and violent pressure as those who commit the actions will quite often have been. Yes, if you are out there and if you are applauding an unnumbered multitude, then you're going to cause an unnumbered multitude to continue sinning and you will be held responsible for that and you will incur a stricter judgment. If you're leading the pack, you will incur a stricter judgment. Surely, if James says, let not many of you become teachers, for in that you will incur a stricter judgment. There are people who are leading the pack of sinners who will themselves incur a stricter damnation. Yes, it is true. And so Paul ends there. Now, given all that we have learned in these four studies, how should we respond? Well, if you're an unbeliever, I say to you that you are presently living under the abiding wrath of God and you need to be delivered. You need to be delivered. That's Paul's point. Flee to Jesus Christ. Flee to Christ. He's your only hope of salvation. He's your only hope of refuge. Flee to Him right now. Jesus came, the Bible says, that sinners might be saved from the wrath, the judgment, the hell that awaits the list for those in this group. There's a punishment that awaits those that are under this kind of wrath. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice, the atonement for those who would believe in Him. Do you remember? As I began this morning, it says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes. There is no atonement for someone who does not believe. But there is an atonement for someone who believes you cannot be saved apart from the work that Jesus Christ went through on the cross. Believe in Christ. And oh, if you are a believer and you have been saying, Yes, preacher, preach the wrath of God upon sinners, but you've not been witnessing to your co-workers. You've not been witnessing to your neighbors. You've not been witnessing to your classmates. You've not been witnessing to your friends, your loved ones of the impending wrath to come. There's something wrong. Why have you been holding back? If you've been studying with me, Romans 1, why have you been holding back? Why, why haven't you been telling people this? I had the opportunity recently in a television interview to be interviewed by a homosexual 
And I did my best. He gave me the opportunity to read Romans 1. And I read it. And 1 Corinthians 6. And in an hour and a half, I, I said, Lord, give me an opportunity. And I prayed and labored to show Him as I'm showing you this morning that He was under the wrath of Almighty God. You have that opportunity as well. This is certainly the bad news of the gospel. Don't be smug in your insulated Christian world away from the contact with unbelievers. This is certainly the bad news of the gospel, but they also desperately need to hear the good news of the saving work of Jesus on the cross. Are you giving them that good news? And most certainly on a day like today when our book, The Five Points of Calvinism, is being released, don't be a practical hyper-Calvinist and expect someone to evangelize those you yourself need to be witnessing to. Don't be hostile with the truth. In that very book that we're releasing today, James McGuire writes in Appendix A these excellent words. Listen to them as we close. I consider myself blessed to have been confronted early on in my first pastorate. An elder commented to me after what I thought was a particularly good sermon on sin, just like I'm preaching this morning. Son, don't you know any good news? He made me mad. He made me real mad. Mumbling to myself for weeks thereafter, I privately reviewed my sermons. He was right. The love of God shed abroad in Jesus Christ was in short supply. I was unwittingly dispensing total depravity without much amazing grace. I needed new models. Someone theologically correct, unyielding of the truth, yet full of the good news. I didn't have to look far. With my attitude adjustment, I saw the Lord Jesus And the apostles teaching vital truth without compromise, but practicing the touch of love. That's why sinners listened. That's why you listen. There really is good news. The great sovereign God has so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Our job is to go into the highways and byways and compel sinners to come in faith to Jesus, knowing that as many as are ordained for eternal life will come. Let's preach the good news. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, this is both the good news and the bad news. And we need to be faithful with the preaching of both. And we trust that we have done so. And Lord, make us faithful to those around us who need to hear a glorious message 
that sinners deserving of death can be rescued from the wrath of God. Thank you for delivering us, Lord, and for using us as instruments so that they too might be delivered. Thank you for allowing us not to be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God revealing your righteousness to everyone who believes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.